Welcome back to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and I'm very excited to bring to you tonight's discussion. This particular discussion happened on Thursday, March 5th, and it was between several men in the Lewis County, Centralia Chehalis area, who share a common vision, a common desire, if you will, and that common desire is to see a distinctly Reformed church start in Lewis County, in the Centralia Chehalis area. We would love to see God use us as men to plant a church that expresses unapologetically the glories of the Reformation. On the 5th of March, we got together and we listened to a lecture that Dr. R.C. Sproul gave on the doctrine of total depravity. Of course, total depravity is one of the foundational doctrines of grace, as it really provides the foundational basis for why the doctrines of grace exist. It's highly biblically relevant. It's highly biblically apparent that man has an inability to come to God on his own terms, and that it is only through the moving of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Sproul really breaks down a passage from John 6 that I think you guys will really like. So we will be listening to the lecture, and then afterwards you can listen in on the discussion that ensued uh, on the topic of total depravity as well as free will. If this is the kind of thing that you would like to be a part of, that you would share in our, you would like to share in our vision for, for the Lewis County area, we would love to have you come. You can reach out to me via SoundCloud or leave a comment in the section on the blog, joestout.org. There's a podcast section for Reformation Roundtable. You can find all the episodes up to this point there. We'd love to have you join us. We would love to have more uh, men that have the vision to see God at work in this area of the country, and we want to be His hands and feet. So I hope you enjoy the discussion. I also hope that we can see God at work here in our own community as we more fully come to understand His holiness and our lowliness. When we get to the concern of the doctrine of total depravity, or the T in TULIP, invariably we are catapulted into the arena of the debate over free will. In fact, the, the, the historic controversy over the degree of original sin that infects us really focuses on that question of free will. You can't have a five-minute conversation on the doctrines of grace or on the doctrine of election without somebody raising the question, what about free will? And so often the debate or the discussion over free will is placed in two different frameworks. On the one hand, the question of human freedom is struggled with vis-a-vis -vis the relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility and our power to act as volitional creatures. But the other place in which the discussion of free will is framed has to do with the question of the relationship between the fall and original sin and the power of human freedom. Let me take a moment to read a confessional summary of this dispute as we find it in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the 17th century British statement of Reformation theology, 
where we read these words, quote, man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Now, what this confession is saying points to the radical character of this doctrine in that it affirms that man's freedom in a certain area has been wholly or completely lost by the fall, by the fall. Not that man has completely lost his power of choosing or of making decisions, but his moral power to do certain things has been completely lost. And that certain thing that is in view here is that man has lost the ability to convert himself or to will on his own steam any spiritual good. Now therein is the crux of the matter of the doctrine of total depravity. It translates into the doctrine of what is called moral inability. I want to take a little time to explain this concept. And again, we can go back to Augustine's view of the inherited corruption. Pelagius disagreed with this, and Pelagius said that Adam's fall affected only Adam, that there is no consequence to future generations, and the seed of Adam sin only by imitation not because of some transferred or transmitted fallen human condition. Now after Pelagius was condemned by the church, a moderate position emerged that was called semi-Pelagianism, semi which taught, yes, there was a fall, that man, the whole human race, mankind, has been affected by Adam's sin, and that we all are born with a corrupt nature, but that corrupt nature leaves what I'm going to call a kind of uh, island of righteousness by which there still remains a vestigial remnant of the original righteousness that though this person needs the help of divine grace in order to be saved, in order to be made holy. Nevertheless, there remains a power within the will of the creature that can cooperate with the grace of God or reject the grace of God. So that in the final analysis, the reason why some persons will come to Christ and others will not, some will be redeemed and some will be lost, 
will be rooted ultimately in human decision and in that power that remains in the will after the fall. Now again, Pelagius said that a person can live a perfect life without grace. And he said that grace facilitates redemption, but it's not necessary. People can be perfect, and in fact, Pelagius argued, some have achieved perfection without any assistance from God. The semi-Pelagians differ with Pelagius at this point by saying, no, grace is absolutely necessary. It's a precondition for anyone's being redeemed. You can't be saved without grace. However, grace is not alone. It is grace plus something else. Grace plus the exertions of the human will in the strength that remains intact after the fall. Augustine was one of the principal architects of the idea that was recovered in the 16th century Reformation in one of the solas of that time, the so-called idea of sola gratia. By grace alone, Augustine was saying that the fall is so profound and that the power of sin is so strong in the human heart that only God, by His grace and by His grace alone, can change the disposition of the human soul to bring that person to faith. So at issue here is whether fallen man has the ability intact, the moral power intact, to incline himself or to embrace in his own strength the offers of help and assistance that come to us from God? Or is it necessary for God to do the initial work of recreation in the soul before the fallen person has the moral power to say yes to the gospel? So what we're talking about here is what is called the divine initiative. Augustine would say this, that before a person comes to Christ, God works unilaterally, monergistically, independently, and sovereignly by changing the soul of the sinner, by rescuing that sinner from the prison house of moral bondage by which he is by nature dead in sin and trespasses and in that state of spiritual death is morally unable to resurrect himself. That God has to come and breathe new spiritual life and power into the soul of that person and as to use Paul's language to quicken him from a state of spiritual death and produce faith in the person's heart before that person has the power to come to Christ. Now those people do come to Christ and they choose Christ. They come willingly and cheerfully and all the rest, but not before 
or until God does his work of sovereign grace in bringing that person from spiritual death to spiritual life. We call that monergistic rebirth or monergistic regeneration, that it is the work of God alone, and since there is nothing I can do to earn it, to deserve it, to merit it, or to provoke it, I must rest my case ultimately on the grace of God and on the grace of God alone. Now, one of the important biblical texts that speaks to this is found in the Gospel of John, in which Jesus makes a somewhat astonishing statement. He says in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been given to him by my Father. Now, we remember earlier in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, who came to him at night, Jesus talked about the necessity of a person's being reborn before they could even see the kingdom of God, not to mention enter the kingdom of God. And in that discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus said to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And just as Jesus makes this strong contrast between flesh and spirit, so the Apostle Paul does the same thing when he talks in the metaphor of warfare that goes on between the flesh and the spirit in the person who has been converted. Even when you are born of the Spirit, the flesh is not completely annihilated, and there's this ongoing struggle. But until the Holy Spirit changes your life, all you are is flesh. This is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. In your natural birth, in your natural state, you were born in the state of sarks, or the biblical concept of flesh, in this fallen condition where the, the desires of your heart are only wicked continuously, in which the apostle says that you walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and that you are dead in your sin. That's the condition of the flesh. Now here in John 6, Jesus says, the flesh profits what? Nothing. In his debate with Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam, Luther, in his perhaps most famous work on the bondage of the will, labored his exposition of this biblical text and kept uh, jibing at Erasmus for having the flesh do something in the process of salvation, not only that is significant, but it is pivotal, and not only does it profit something, but it profits everything, because if in the final analysis 
We rest upon this innate moral power within us that is not touched or incarcerated by the fall, and that the power here of the flesh is to incline oneself to spiritual good, and one exercises the proper inclination, what that profits him is eternal life. And Luther, never tiring of, of debating with Erasmus, says that that nothing is not a little something. And he said, Jesus is serious when he says the flesh promise or profits nothing. Then he goes on to make this statement, no man can come to me unless it is given to him by the Father. Now that text is very important because it begins with the statement, no man. And if you are students of the grammar stage of logic, you will recognize that statement or that concept, no man, as what is called a universal negative proposition. It describes something negative of everybody in the class man. Now, I would like to be able to say that this is used in a gender-specific way and only refers to the inherent moral inability of males. Unfortunately, the usage here in the Greek is that it is shorthand for mankind. What Jesus is saying is that no human person. He's saying something about everybody, something negative about everybody. Now again, the next word is crucial. No man can. Not no man may. We know the difference about between may and can. I've talked about that many times. I remember when I was in grade school and I asked the teacher, can I go sharpen my pencil? And she said, I'm sure that you can. But you mean, may I go sharpen my pencil? And I have since discovered that that teacher got around. In fact, she was ubiquitous, and that everybody I've ever met had the same teacher at some time in their, in their lives, haven't you? And that teacher says, I'm sure you can. The question is, may I? We're not talking here about permission, but the word can describes ability or power, pose. And what Jesus is saying here is that no human being has the power or the ability to do something. Now, these are strong words coming from the lips of our Lord. This isn't Augustine or Calvin or Luther. This is Christ himself saying something about man's ability. And he says, no man is able. No man has the power to do what? to come to me, so that there is an inherent lack of ability of some kind for human beings to come to Jesus in some way. Now, obviously, when he says, come to me, he's not talking spatially or geographically. Obviously, none of us have the ability to come to him 
in his earthly presence in Palestine because he's not there anymore. And he wasn't saying that no man could come and find out where he was living. The coming to me is the way in which he calls people to embrace him in faith for their salvation. I don't think there's any biblical scholar that would dispute that that's what Jesus is talking about here with respect to coming to him. No man can come to him unless, unless, now unless indicates a necessary condition that has to be met before a desired consequence can possibly follow. So that unless points to some sine qua non, some absolutely essential thing that has to take place before a person can come to Jesus. Now what is it? Well, here he simply says, no one can come to me unless it is given to him by the Father. Earlier in the text he talks about no one can come to me unless the Father woos him or lures him, although the word that is used there is the word that it, most dictionaries translates by the English word compel. It's not just an external enticement like trying to lure people to come to him. The idea here is that something, God has to do something at this point. God has to enable a person to come. That's the key point that we, according to the doctrine of total depravity, have lost our natural human ability to come to Jesus. We still make choices, but we make our choices according to our desires. That's the essence of freedom, to be able to choose according to your own desires or inclinations. But it's a double-edged sword. Not only are we free in the sense that we choose according to our desires, but we cannot not be free at that point. We not only may choose what we want, but the only kind of a choice that is a real choice is the choice that is made according to what you want. And so we're all still free people in the sense that we can do what we want. But that's not the royal liberty of which the New Testament speaks. It doesn't address the problem of moral bondage and what original sin teaches in the doctrine of moral inability found under the rubric of total depravity means that we are slaves to our own desires. And by nature we have no desire for Christ or for the things of God. And so we freely reject him insofar as we choose what we want and what we don't want is Him. Unless God changes the desire of the heart. You see, that's why it's not called natural inability, or it's called moral inability. We don't have the power or the ability to love the good. For that to happen, we have to be changed. God has to intervene, and in His grace, He must rescue us from spiritual death and the other metaphor, spiritual bondage. He has to give us the gift of faith. By 
creating a spiritual resurrection in the heart and in the soul. And so that's the first point of the acrostic of total depravity. It refers to the degree of corruption that is so severe that there is no island free from the bondage of corruption found within the deep recesses of the human soul. But by, until we are born of the Spirit, we are flesh. And the only way we can ever come to faith is that if God in His grace and His grace alone liberates us by causing us to be born a second time by the creative power of the Holy Ghost. Do you guys know that word monogistic, monogistically? You ever heard of monergism books? Monergism. Monergism. No? I don't think so. Yeah, I actually discovered them. I can't remember who threw. Um, many years back, they actually don't, they don't really sell books anymore. They mainly just headline titles of books because Amazon just totally took over the market. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you can get, I don't know if you can still get t-shirts, you used to be able to get t-shirts that said monergism, and it would show like a heart of stone, and it would show, you know, all the stuff going on with it. it okay. Cool. Anyway, I, I bought several books from them back in the day. I'd, I'd look it up. <laughs> yeah. So that's where I first heard the term, yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. You know, so a couple of things that make me think, uh, and I understand how you can have at least a couple of uh, camps on how this thing, it's not like it's idiots on one side and then reform theology is... Depends on which side you're on. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, obviously no, it's... Yeah, no, I, I know you are. I, I'm just saying that uh, it's not like, you know... Democrats and Trump, where Democrats really are idiots. <laughs> Sorry. But, but when you think about uh, Adam and Eve, I mean, we're in a much better position than they were because they, they were within perfection with Christ, or with God, Christ, whatever. And, and yet they could be tricked in fall. And, uh, and they did. Whereas, um, you know, then you have the whole thing of eternal security and whatnot that can fit into this too. And, and so that's why I see us, not only are we totally, de uh, you know, in depravity in that we do need to be drawn, but then if we aren't kept by the Spirit, there's many passages that support that, mm -hmm. uh, we could easily be tricked and fall mm -hmm. out of grace. And so it, it just kind of, uh, to me, it kind of fits together really nice. And then you always have the very strong um, example of Paul on his way to persecute the church. And I mean, he's just absolutely, um, mm -hmm. you know, ambushed. And there's nothing he's kind of being even wooed. He's being just, uh, you Flat know, told, <laughs> compelled. Yeah. Compelled. Right. And so, and so, I mean, it just, to me, I, I don't have any trouble with this. It just seemed like it certainly, uh, there's no, there was no little spot in me that, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, and yet I understand I could have been worse. And, and yeah. even as a believer, I could be, uh, you know, uh, more um, uh, obedient <clears throat> or, or less obedient and stuff like that. So there's lots of freedom in there for will. But that's, 
kind of my two cents. Yeah. You ready to go? I need coffee. <laughs> there was, Sorry. There was the, there's none, there's, I would say then that you would, to a certain extent, have to, you know, there's the, the old kind of hymn from a hundred years ago, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me is, and, and you could look at that from a kind of two different spots, but in terms of salvation, that's not the way it goes. Jesus doesn't softly call you. He kicks down the door and saves you. <laughs> um, now, there's also the, the wooing of the Spirit and, and whatnot. It's like um, we've been going over during, during Lent. We've been, uh, we've been, there's 40 verses in Psalm 37. And so we've been reading through a verse every day and kind of just building on it every day. And in Psalm 37, uh, it, verse 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And we've been meditating on the fact that that doesn't mean that he gives you whatever you want. It means that your wants are his wants. You know, he gives you what desires you ought to have. And otherwise, the natural desires of the heart are utterly selfish. The only thing I would disagree with what you were saying is that Adam and Eve weren't tricked. Eve was tricked and Adam rebelled. It's Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And that's in that in a lot of ways that made it up all the worse. That's why his condemnation was Eve had pain in childbearing, but Adam had, you know, was basically, the ground was cursed because of him. Um, Mm -hmm. Children, I I mean, I I wouldn't maybe burn for this, but uh, children inherit their sinful nature from their fathers. (laughs) That's why Mm -hmm. Mary didn't pass on a sinful nature to Jesus, because while she was, um, while she was, of course, morally had original sin, she didn't have the ability to pass it on to Jesus. And since God was his father, he had no, that's how he had no original sin. Um, but that's how hard our hearts are because when Adam, with the, the, the New England primer that was used for like 250 oh, yeah, Adam's years. Adam's fall, we sinned all. Yeah, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That was, the, that was how you learned the alphabet. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. That was, I think that that is so, I mean, so critical to understand that uh, our, as it says in Romans 3, we were reading in Bible study last night, um, our, our throat is an open tomb and we have the poisons of asp under our lips and our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness and there's no fear before our eyes. That's the natural man. That's how man is on his own, apart from the quickening of the Holy Spirit. I probably had that coming after throwing the end of the bus last week. <laughs> uh, when my yeah. Yeah. You deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to commandeer the conversation here. Have you guys heard? Has anybody heard arguments against total depravity that have you felt like have held any water? Because total depravity seems to me a fairly. It's it's kind of even for like Arminian folks. I haven't heard a lot of people arguing for like truly semi-Pelagian views. I had one person who who had a stance that like, well, I think you know, if a person really tried really hard, they could you know. But this person had very, very little biblical understanding and yeah. their doctrine was about as watered down as you can get. So it, was, it wasn't it was really an a in-depth discussion. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think any argument that I've heard has, generally speaking, elevated the character attribute of love inaccurately mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. almost the exclusive attribute that God has um, and what comes of that the outcropping of that is the notion that 
love is a free will exchange between mm. two parties where you cannot actually, you cannot elicit some, something to love you and you cannot, so you can't force something or somebody to love you. And so if God is love, then therefore, how could he force you to love him back? And so the salvation issue becomes an issue of your, you need to choose self, you're choosing salvation because you love God. And that love has to be a, a free will exchange. And so now I, I, where I would maybe contend against that, and that, that's been, I guess, I think that's the most generous argument, the most generous framework that I've heard for that. I think that the... Um, um, would you would you condense that down to the God wouldn't create robots kind of argument? Like uh, it, it's a, yeah, it's a similar it's right. a similar situation there, right? Yeah. Where where God yeah God God doesn't create a robot and yeah. robots can't love, and so therefore if you are predestined, yeah. then how can there actually be how can there actually be love involved right. in that? Um, one I would I would contend that that is heavily rooted in a Western philosophy of what love actually is right i think that there is i think there is something primarily emotion primarily an emotional yeah, yeah an emotional element to it um uh, rather than having some sort of a, a pragmatic component right so yeah so i think i think that that's i think that's part of it um and the other thing that i would say too is that in most of those cases that instead of allowing for the scripture to facilitate your your theology and philosophy meaning that it's actually being pulled out of scripture and then you're and then you're developing your framework of understanding of reality around that it's i have a framework of understanding and so i'm going to view scripture through that lens so that way i'm going to and we all have confirmation bias but we're going to cherry pick so that way we can keep that sort of framework in there the other, I'd say the other aspect, and this is mainly through in, ineffective discussions on forums <laughs> um, that tend to come up, is that the, the most common argument against, not necessarily total depravity, but the, because total depravity leans into the predestined nature of humanity. I think that's, I think that's really where the, those two things are heavily linked. And the argument almost always comes to, well, you are, you are cherry picking scriptures. You, you know, you person who is assuming that God would predestine you and you're not reading Romans nine in its totality, right? Mm -hmm. You're just picking out what you want to see in there though. I mean, it's mm -hmm. kind of hard when you're like, I've read from Romans 7 through Romans 11 and mm -hmm. Romans 9 seems to indicate something pretty strongly there. So I don't, I, you know, I don't, mm -hmm. yeah. And then, so like doctrines of the elect and things mm -hmm. like that. So I know this kind of is all encompassing, but right. with total depravity, I think the biggest thing that comes up is that how the, the question that I would get as a rebuttal from somebody would be, well, how is somebody able to do good in the world? Mm. You know? And my argument would be that anything good that you've seen is bringing glory to God because God has enabled that person through a common grace. Hmm. Whereas I would ask, you know, uh, yeah, my, the, the same question, like, why is there evil in the world? The why is there evil in the world? I would say, well, why is there good in the world? Right. Hmm. It's because God 
And so somebody would say, well, why is anybody, why is this evil person able to do good? Yeah. Because God has allowed for, allowed for that to happen. That's yeah. not a saving good. Right. I didn't save that person. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, for God's will. So, and, and if we believe that the good works that we have to do have been created by God before the foundation of the world, then unless you are at peace with God, you don't have any of those good works set out for you to do because your good works are filthy rags. You know, even, even if, you know, two people give to the same charity, the same amount of money, the same amount of time, the same right. amount of whatever, one might be doing it in, in the will of God because God set them out with that, with that uh, task in mind, and the other person is in opposition to God. And we know from many places, but Psalm 7 being one, that God is actively opposing the wicked. He's angry with the wicked every day. He sharpens his sword and readies his arrows at the wicked. And who are the wicked? Well, you know, Romans, Romans chapter 3, uh, sets, Romans chapter 1 says the Gentiles are awful. Romans chapter 2 <laughs> says the Jews are awful. Right? <laughs> Romans chapter 3 says we're all awful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sensing a common theme. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. When you were when you were kind of coming around Luke to the to the, the reformational doctrines, was total depravity ever one that tripped you up at all? Mm. Uh, not necessarily. I don't. I don't think. But the idea the idea of free will is still something that you know. Uh, I struggle to argue argue for mm. you know the the reformed theological basis sometimes. And I guess the idea of the idea of uh, of someone making doing good in the world, someone who may by all external means appear unsaved, you know, it's like, well, okay, if we're saying that man is completely uh, morally inept, you know, and is unable to to do moral good, you know, I think the argument is, well, what do you mean, you know, okay, somebody could do all sorts of "Quote unquote things that could be viewed as morally good in the mm. world and never know, you know, never appear to know God." Mm. And I understand your, you know, your view is like, well, to God, those are filthy rags. Mm. But how can you consider them? You know, that 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 other side of how could you consider those are the same thing? Those are good things, mm-hmm. right? By definition of what is good and and being treating mm-hmm. your neighbor well and all that stuff. So sometimes you know it's a little bit difficult to say, well, oh yeah, well. You know, it's because they don't know God because, you know, that stuff's no good. It doesn't count. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, it, I think the argument comes back to eternity and, you know, who are, you know, answering to our maker because, yeah, all through life, those things may look good, mm-hmm. but guess what? You know, you're going to answer for everything else later. So, um, of course, Saul could have made the argument when he didn't put everything to destruction the way God told him to. He could have said, well, it's a good work. I was exercising mercy. <laughs> and to natural man, we, we might see that as like, well, he was being merciful. And, but, yeah. but to God who sees the heart, of course, we know a different story. But, but I, I'm totally with you there. It's like definitely we're in a position where we only know that about Saul because Scripture tells us. Yeah. In most cases, in every case with one another, we don't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I think about like Paul said, you know, like now we see through a glass dimly or darkly. Like we only see, a, we see God like traces of God in creation and in, even in each other. Um, but it's, it's, it's just a glimmer. It's not the whole thing. And then 
at the end of things, when we've left this world, that those of us who've put our faith in Christ will enter into God, the fullness of God's presence, and those who have not will go into the fullness of his absence, um, that we still see those right things, those good things done in that there's a, still a glimmer of God's presence in the world. So even though, yes, it's broken, um, it, there's, st- there's still some of God's goodness in, in humanity, I think. Like, like, you know, I've met people who were as lost as the day is long, who really had a heart for, like, the homeless and did wonderful things for people in need, but they were utterly lost. Um, and, you know, and I think that's what we see that even, you know, it says there will be those that say, you know, Lord, do we not cast out demons in your name? And he says, depart from me. Mm-hmm. Like they were doing good works even in the name of the Lord, and yet they still did not practice that. They did not truly know God. And I think that, um, so I think I think we still see some, some of the goodness that is inherent in us by being made in God's image, even in lost folks. But eventually as things are divided into mm-hmm. the, like I said, the fullness of God's presence and the fullness of his absence. Can I have a salt and a light? Mm-hmm. I mean, because mankind sees the goodness from believers mm-hmm. that, uh, because there's, there's, uh, there's societies that have nothing to do with mm-hmm. Christ, you know, and we could pick Africa because there's examples there. And some of those societies, some of their high, high, high watermarks is how much they can actually steal, how much they can lie, how much they can um, uh, acquire in any manner, shape, and, and it's looked at as a, a virtuous thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of where there's absolutely almost no salt and light mm-hmm. and stuff like that going too. So I, I think the depravity is right there, and anything you see good is... Uh, a little bit of blessing from God from mm-hmm. believers being around, or mm-hmm. them being around believers. What do we see about kids? Is that okay. more of that common, that common grace of God being mm-hmm. shared among? Is that kind of how you would define that? Yeah, I, I think when I when I see something that happens as like a that happens as a as a good in the world, the the question of intentionality is I think hugely important because. The motivation for the Christian, and this is why I have a problem regularly with Christians who will do a good work but not present the gospel Mm. in that good work. Oh, well, we're just going to demonstrate by our actions that we are Christians, is that the motivation and the intention is that the good work would bring somebody the would bring somebody to an understanding of what the gospel is about. So Mm. in absence of the gospel, the good work is in vain. Because it doesn't have an eternal benefit. It just has a temporal one. Right? Can, can, I, so, push, can I push back a little on that? Just, 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 as a, just as a different, the opposite aspect of that. If our good works are set out for the glory of God, then the, you, I wouldn't even say vestigial or like the residual effect of the person being presented with the gospel um, is a benefit. But what I would say is that isn't the primary goal to give, bring God glory in all, all that we do. And whether, you know, clearly communicating the gospel verbally being secondary to that. Yeah. But I I think that, I think that it comes down to, so maybe, um, communication through action, right? So well, kind of leaning on the complaint that you had earlier, (laughs) which was, which was that, why are Christians silent? 
Why are Christians silent mm-hmm. all the time? I think that it is far too often that you have a situation where it is, I'm going to go into this community here and I'm going to do this good thing and work under the assumption that this salt will make it self-evident that I am a Christian and I hold these beliefs to be true in my life, that Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ died for my sins and that I am raised anew because of the work that he has done on the cross. Me going and and pouring concrete for an orphanage in uh, in Mexico, while a good thing, does not necessarily clearly articulate that. Sure. Right. So, right. so I think so. Maybe maybe it is a little bit of a pendulum swing into mm-hmm. the direction of like, okay, here's this. But I, I think more than more than that, I think it does come down to what is the where is the heart of the person at mm-hmm. that is exercising that work, right? And many times when, when, and I can speak to this directly from having a very good friend who was an atheist through college. We were roommates. We actually got along incredibly well. We just hung out and talked about this kind of stuff all the time. Because he asked, you know, well, what's the difference between me doing this and you doing this, right? I mean, it's a good thing, right? And I said, it's all about the intention because the reason I'm doing it is because I want to bring glory to Jesus. The reason you're doing it is because it makes you feel good. So in that moment there, the reason that he's doing it is a hedonistic reason, right? So that good thing is immediately become, it becomes apparent that that good thing is now actually a corrupt thing, hmm. right? So yeah. that's... Seeking after pleasure. He's seeking after pleasure, right? Because if it didn't make him feel good, then he would not, then he would not do it. So it wasn't an altruistic motive, actually. Hmm. It, was a, it was actually a selfish reason why he was participating in that. And then the moment that he doesn't feel good is going to stop doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a if you have a spiritual awakening that is a a, a motor inside you that's driving you that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I would that's what I would say. Is right. that it, so to answer your question, no, not every single time does does it need to be completely like verbally communicated. I'm doing this because of you know this, but sure. um, I do think that the Christian should be praying that in their heart, that their motivation would be right, that they would yeah. be doing this for the glory of God. Right. Um, so, anyway. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry to cut you off, Spencer. You were going to say something else. Something about it with your children. Oh, as I say, we see that even in our kids, like the total depravity thing, like people who argue against total depravity. Like, there's, there's sinful acts I've seen in my children that I know they didn't learn from me. Like, mm-hmm. Because I know there's a lot of things that they've learned from watching me and Sarah, but there's a lot of things that I'm like, like, why are you doing that? You know, like like a blatant sinful issue, and like mm. I know they haven't seen that behavior acted out by Sarah and I, and it starts sometimes at a very young age, mm-hmm. and you know, so I, I think it's hard to argue with that. Like kids, kids show their sin sometimes even before they're crawling. Mm. I mean, they can be defined very very young. Mm. Yeah. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Do, I've heard one of the arguments against the five points or Calvinism is that they, uh, one of the arguments, it's, it's actually a fair one, and I'm glad that in talk two here, uh, R.C. got into some more scripture, but that it's, it's, that the five points are largely psychological, or not necessarily so much, not only merely psychological, but they're just logical. So, and, and, and I, I agree that they are there is inherent logic to the idea that if you're totally depraved, all these other things mm-hmm. 
by necessity kind of have to follow. And people will say, while they're logical, you know, they're not necessarily always biblical. Yeah, it's scriptural. You know, scriptural, it's exactly. It's important in each way, yeah. Right. Now, I am an unabashed Calvinist. You know, I, I kind of robustly hold to all five points. So I think that they're biblical as well. But has that been a, has that, do you guys feel like that's been an, an issue for you? You know, kind of like, maybe re, let me rephrase that. Not necessarily an issue, but do you, do you guys see the logic behind starting with total depravity and what flows from that? And then maybe question two is, A, is the logic there? And B, do you feel the scripture's there? Uh, I, I certainly do, but... Uh, in, the greatest, in the greater sense, yes. Um, I, I'm kind of on the same. I'm on the same page with you, Joe. I think sometimes where I would struggle with some maybe that argument of hey, it's more logical and not scriptural would be comparing, um, you know, comparing passages where you know Jesus is going to say that I desire that all come to me, mm-hmm. you know, and that I desire mm-hmm. that the whole mm-hmm. world be saved, mm-hmm. or that every man may say I've heard this or that, and yeah, and and I read that and I go, but yeah. Uh, you know, sure. Do you? But we're all, <laughs> I mean, we're all in able, you know? Yeah. And so sometimes, sometimes I battle a little bit in my mind with, okay, um, you know, is, is everything in tune here? Is everything okay? Mm. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I have to reason that out a little bit by going back to other passages and just going, no, yeah, sure. this works. Yeah. But it's not always easy, I think. Right. In, in the mind. To, to wrap around all that. But if you go the other way, Luke, it pre- uh, presents some fairly large obstacles to deal with, too, you know. So if you do have that, what was the little white spot? In the, the little middle? island? The little island. <laughs> the, the, the island of righteousness? <laughs> the preserved island of yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to see where mankind would have uh, that spark of goodness that could, that could make him sharp enough clear enough in the heart or the mind to be able to make that decision because I mean where does Ron how does he figure that out and um, it's it sometimes it just seems like it would infringe upon grace which once again Romans 11 would argue against because then no longer would it be grace it would be Ron's Works. Ron's little, well, certainly and, and some aspect of it would be. And so t- to me, that's just harder where I can just say, well, they're all, you know, we're all depraved. And yes, God does desire, you know, that. And, and, it, and it would be great, I guess, but how does he become or stay sovereign hmm. and have all authority, have all ability to know the future and all that, and then then somehow divorce himself from understanding that well, at some point in time I'll probably fix Spencer. I don't know yet whether it'll happen. <laughs> I mean, he's just, how could he not know? Mm-hmm. And then how could Spencer have this little island too with him and Ron? And, and uh, Otherwise, those are just challenges too. Mm-hmm. It's not like that's an answer to your question, but right. it does make it difficult. Right, yeah. And if you were arguing it from the other way, I don't know of another answer you would give other than, you know, if God desires all men to be saved, well, why aren't they? 
So what if you're the Armenian? What's your answer? Is it because he? Well, it's because. And if I go there, then I I know right. the answer, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Why. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like well, because God wants to preserve it, it, it. Ultimately, the answer is the same for both the Calvinist and the Arminianist, or for anybody. It's that God may desire all men to be saved, but He has other desires that are higher than that. And it's and what are those other desires? Well, the Arminian says it's our free will. He wants our, which is another way of saying our own little island of sovereignty. We could call it a little sovereign nation. <laughs> a little sovereign nation in our heart that ultimately God doesn't want to impinge on that. He doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to take cap, take that part captive. Um, and for us, we would say, well, the reason why not, why all men are not saved is because um, doesn't it doesn't fulfill God's glory the way he has determined it should. Um, which is more biblical? I think it's, I feel very, Persuaded that the latter is more biblical, mm-hmm. that scripture is consistent, that yes, there are definitely problematic texts that we have to figure out that maybe don't, that maybe seem to be saying something other than that. You know, what do you mean God changed his mind when Moses persuaded him? What is that all about? You know, God never changes his God never changes his mind. Well, it says he did, so we believe he did, but in what way did he change his mind? You know, yeah. all those are good yeah. questions to have, but yeah. even though. Calvinism is inherently logical. I also think it has the added benefit of being scriptural. And maybe the only other thing I would add is that, you know, theology is a science. It's the queen of sciences, but that doesn't mean that there isn't vast parts of that are just mysterious workings out of God that we believe only, we can't necessarily logically explain. And maybe we can only logically explain them from what the scripture says about them, not because they necessarily, it's like, it's like we've, we've said this before, just the Trinity, it, using our vernacular, you can't explain the Trinity. It doesn't, it's, it's, uh, it's beyond, it's above, it transcends our ability to understand, but we believe it anyways because scripture is so clear on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you explain an eternal being? Mm-hmm. You mean like God who has always been? He's, there was no beginning? As finite creatures, we can only imagine yeah. ideas, but the reality is beyond us. Yeah. At least, well, I have a hunch it's forever beyond us, but I don't know. We get eternity to work on it. <laughs> right. <clears throat> we actually just finished reading... Uh, I finished reading to the kids today uh, the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle. And at the end of the book, you know, as they're essentially entering into heaven, um, after we got done reading it, I told Sarah, you know, it's kind of it's an interesting thing, the idea of an eternity with these constant learning new things that are like far more enjoyable than the last, like without an end. And that is like wrapping your mind around, well, like surely you run out of you know, we'll run out of things eventually, but we won't. Like, that's the crazy thing, and it's hard yeah. to... Well, I don't have any problem envisioning that. <laughs> I can hardly remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, with a renewed mind and body, you know, that always helps, too. Yeah, but you think so? <laughs> I think, yeah, it should, it should make, it, make a difference. It's your only hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if not, well, then what's the point? <laughs> yeah, oh, man. It's exciting. I think the uh, kind of bring back to the argument from the other side 
Um, the arguments that I tend to that I would tend to hear would be they normally come in the form of a question. So the question would be, what's the point of praying? Right? Mm-hmm. So the question, what's the point of praying? Uh, what is the point of evangelizing? So that's the other one that comes up. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then, uh, what is the point of trying to, trying to lead a holy life? Mm-hmm. That one less so. The, the first two are, the first two are predominantly, the other one is sort of just kind of an outcropping of maybe, um, Well, if you knew all things, then for you, Andrew, then praying wouldn't make any sense. But since you don't, it's, it's just as valid as whether we're completely wrong on the tulip or not, and it's all Arminian, then just praying make more sense to you? Would it then, I mean, is that a fair that the, 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 the argument would be that if everything has been predetermined, that there is no human involvement in the, in the element of in their own salvation, and God is sovereign and unchangeable to such a degree, then why would petitioning even be a thing? Right. That's, that, that, so that, that that's the that's the question that's presented. I mean, right. I have I have counter I have counter arguments to that, but because you're sure. kind of asking, I was just yeah. process, sitting here processing, going, okay, what are some of the things? What are some of the things that come up yeah. on a regular basis, or maybe not a regular basis, but enough times that I've yeah. heard it from the other side that go, okay, what is it? Yeah, you know, and what's your response to that? Of course, my response is is that as I've matured as a Christian, my prayers have definitely changed. The way that I pray now is almost exclusively about, I want to do your will. Show me what your will is and falling in line with that rather than it being, I don't know. I mean, rather than it being so, so petition driven or what is the purpose of my petition? Why do I want to see somebody get healthy? I want to see somebody get If your wife is deathly sick. Mm -hmm. You aren't going to pray only God's will be done. You're going to pray, I want your will to be done, Father, in this, but may I ask that my wife would recover and get better? I would like that. Christ himself did that before the cross. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah, Yeah, and so on this side of it, when you do that, it's not like, but I know, Father, it really doesn't matter because you've already figured it all out. So just checking in. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't mean to be flippant there, but I'm just no, saying no, no, no. that from your end, you're going to be on your knees and you're going to be saying, mm-hmm. I hope that, whatever, you know, whoever you're the loved one or whatever. And there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. I mean, that's, that's you, you are doing that because from your side, you know, uh, you don't know what the outcome is. So you're mm-hmm. totally dependent upon God. So yeah. go to him. He asks you to do that. It's not sure. a matter of it's not that. just because you demand it. Yeah, command. Yeah, yeah, just just he doesn't say you know. And we know you don't quite understand that. So whatever you want to do, mm-hmm. but Luke understands a little better. So you need to pray. <laughs> so yeah, you just you just you have to do that. That's part of faith. That's you know. And James promises that your prayers will do something. They'll avail it much. They'll mm-hmm. they'll actually accomplish something. How does that work with a God who is sovereign? You know, who's got everything all figured right. out. And since you don't know all that, you do know that they will avail as much 
and and whatever that is, then I want to I want to yeah. I want to take a bite out of that. I want to be part of that, mm-hmm. even though I can't explain it, even to a sympathetic ear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I think another argument, maybe back that I've seen, is that anyone made in the image of God can't be totally depraved. Meaning that uh, that's what I was going to ask. What does it mean to be an image bearer of God? Right. That was actually going to be my, ne- my the question that popped up at the end. Yeah. Was like, okay, what does it mean to be an image bearer? Right. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And, and I think RC did a good job of explaining that it's it's not a matter of you know you're not as low as the dirt and just a worm. It's that you can't just like you he really emphasized uh, John six. Uh, you no man can come unless the Father draws him, and so it's. It's not that the total depravity means that God despises the image of your face. It's it's or despises everything about you. No, He made you in love. He even even those that He created for destruction were created from the joy of the Creator. You know, it's like it's all spoken forth in in seven, in six days. He He spoke it all forth in joy, um, and all of it uh, we've been made in His image. But we start with the total depravity because we know that we are completely unable um, to please God apart from him allowing us to, apart from him making, a, making the way for us. And, and you know, maybe another, uh, argue, or another answer I might have to why pray um, or why evangelize is, you know, when you, they generally come back to parenting and being a father. But when your kid draws you, when your two-year-old draws you a picture, I mean, let's be honest, it's usually not very good, but you love it and you delight in it, not because it's so good, but because you love them and you know what it will be. You know where they're going, you know where, how they're maturing. And just as we bring our kind of our, you know, you know nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross do I cling. Uh, when, we, when we bring our feeble praise to God, he sees it as a loving father, sees the scribbles on a page that the two-year-old did. He, he sees it in love. And so why do we pray? Well, we pray because God loves us yeah. <laughs> and because we're his children. And, you know, that's, and this is, he taught us, he taught us how to do it. Not only did he tell us, tell us to, but he taught us how to do it. Yeah. And if the creator made the clay pot for destruction, it's like, what am I going to do? Are you with that? Can I go with that? That's not right. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. I mean, I mean. I mean, we should all be, I guess, wiped out anyway. So mm-hmm. that's where the grace comes in, obviously, and you guys all know that. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that it's very hard for me to do the same thing that you guys are dealing with, too, I'm sure, or whatever it seems like. And that is that, well, I guess all men should be preserved for eternity and blessed and all that kind of stuff, because why would you make something for destruction? Well, I guess God can do that if mm-hmm. he chooses. Mm-hmm. He's all-knowing, it's, it's, and, and we don't quite understand that. I feel like I'm kind of almost trying to preach to Andrew. I'm not disagreeing with anything you guys have said. I'm just, sure. yeah. I, I'm just yeah. throw, I'm throwing out yeah. into the ether the arguments yeah, that I've heard. Yeah, I got, I, yeah. You're saying the same things that I would say, so you can right. keep preaching to everybody. Yeah. Isn't about it's good that? practice. Good practice. Good, yeah, good practice. Hey, you should have a defense for your faith, right? And yeah. why you yeah. believe what you believe. Um, yeah. yeah. No, but I, but they are thing, they are things that come they are things that come up, and I think that um, yeah I 
It's one thing that's what's interesting because we're going to talk about. Uh, well, it looks like he's going to talk about uh, unconditional election next week. Hopefully, hopefully, he's hopefully, keep, we got to keep that across. Yeah, I got to keep that going. Uh, um, anyway, it, one thing that is, I have heard, though I don't necessarily agree with this entirely, but I have heard that the only people that worry about being the elect are the elect. <laughs> right, right. Like, sure. if you, you know, if you're worried about am I one of the elect? Uh, you know, it's very likely that you probably are because it's like, well, why are you even wrestling with that question? Well, I'm guessing they'll get into the positive and the negative of election. And I think people have trouble with that negative side of election because there are some that aren't chosen. So you know, one's elected to, to destruction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's It's got to be both ways. But, right? but what I think is interesting about that, my only pushback would be that there are a lot of people who are in that unelected camp, unelected, that uh, it's very evident that they hate God. Hmm. <laughs> like they don't, or they don't want God. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and so they're not actually worried about being the elect because they don't even Because God has not given them the desires of their heart. Right, right. It's like, yeah, well, why would I care? Yeah. Wasn't it Stephen Hawking that said, there is no God and I hate him? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> There is no God. I hate him. Yeah, yeah and then there's just the... Uh, uh, the hubris intelligence. A, a buddy that I bicycle with, Chuck. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I can't even get to the fun. I mean, we talk a little bit now and then, but he'll get a little... He's pretty liberal, too. But... but well, he's on you, a bike. You, That's you, your first indicator. <laughs> <laughs> you would never talk about Trump's bike at all. Oh, uh, well, actually, that does make it pretty mad. I think what was fundamental is you can't say, okay, so Chuck, let's just go and just say that Jesus Christ did die and he did, um, you know, and he was raised from the dead. And he goes, wait, stop right there. I don't even, I, I don't buy that at all. I don't believe it. And he's been in Very church and he quit church. Yeah. And I'm just kind of going, it does make for a tough conversation. <laughs> you know? yeah. Right. I, yeah, if you don't have if you don't have any kind of entry point like that, or they're just going, we don't. The, there's almost like, I'll keep praying for you, man. Yeah, you know, because yeah. at that point, at that point, it's like, you know, are you really pearls before swine kind of thing, yeah. where you know, you're giving the gospel to somebody who's just trampling it under their yeah. foot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I think about like, we um, having tried to share the gospel with people at the hospital, there's there's people who or raised Catholic, or raised, you know, whatever denomination, and so they already have some semblance of a basis, they just have never really lived by what they were taught as children, and um, and have never come to faith. And so sometimes you'll have a conversation, and they have that basis of understanding, and that you have a good conversation with them, and then I've had people who flat out, like, you know, just flat out, like, I don't believe that. And it's like, okay, well. <laughs> or they say, oh, that's not for me. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not my personal yeah, truth. I'm glad that works out for you. That, that does not, it's not for me. It's not the reality that I've created. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then I had one guy who was a pan- pantheistic. Really? He was like, oh yeah, I think God's in the side table and God's in the bed and God's in the walls. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> my sheetrock is calling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I never really mind that though because then I then you can always keep talking. Mm. You know. But oh, they have some semblance of, a, of an idea of a deity. And it, yeah, you can talk to him about the unknown God. You know, because a lot of yeah. times uh, the Catholics um, are really nervous to, you know, it's mm. kind of such a private thing. Like, yeah. with, 
to Ann's parents, you know, that just it made them nervous. Their lips would quiver, and, mm. and so we'd have to really tread lightly there. And then, right. and then when you're around people for 40 years and stuff, you can't every time you see them. Uh, but yeah, yeah really kind of, kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess defensive or something. Yeah. Hmm. 